So, Marissa, how many weeks until the midterm elections? Devin, there are four freaking weeks until the election. (laughs) Are you ready to crush it? I'm ready to crush it. Hi, I'm Devin Handy. Hello, I'm Marissa Cavis. And this is Crush the Midterms, where we talk about all of the things that you can do leading up to the midterm elections to make sure we get Democrats elected. So it's been an exciting, I think we're on episode six now. That's so crazy. What a journey. (laughs) I know. And this week's topic is very interesting, though often overlooked. We're going to be talking about polling and polling data and the never-ending dream of, of you know, who's up, who's down, who's winning, who's losing, and sort of get a, an expert to tease out some of the nuance there. People, people love polls. People, people love, love polling. I mean, I, I poll came out the other day, and you know that meme of, of Kermit with the hood on, like looking at himself in the mirror? Yes. And it's like me, but also me. And yes. so I was like, me, don't pay attention to the polls. Also me. Oh my God, I can't believe Beto is winning. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's really hard to figure out how seriously you should be taking these polls because it's if it's in your favor, you, you really want to be like, yeah, this is totally affirmative. But then if it's not, you're like, well, polls are meaningless. Right, exactly. Polls don't mean anything, nothing matters.com. It's also hard because a lot of times you'll get two polls that come out at the same time or very close to each other that have completely different uh, uh, outcomes, that have completely different people ahead. Marissa and I were just talking about polling out of Florida, and it's it's very contradictory. I mean, polls will come out that say one thing and and then say another thing directly opposite just after. So right now the polls are saying that Andrew Gillum has a narrow lead in the in the governor's race. Against DeSantis, who is crazy and racist. <laughs> and and then but there's a, a poll from, you know, a couple of weeks ago that says Andrew Gillum had a nine point lead. And and so it's just going up and down. And the, and the same thing with the senatorial race and Florida, um, the current governor, Rick Scott, is running for Senate, and he has been, a couple of weeks ago, he had a, a nice nice lead, um, and then, uh, you know, a week or so ago, Nelson was back up, and it just keeps fluctuating, and the, and the same poll that just showed Gillum with a slight lead showed Scott with a slight lead, and then I looked at Real Clear Politics, which is, um, for those of you who aren't familiar, a great sort of central place to see all the different polls, it's like the the average is Nelson up by 2.4 points. So he was up seven at one point. He right. was up one at one point. And it's, so it's just like you really, the, taking things with a grain of salt really applies to polling. We talked to Rachel Bittacoffer, who is a professional pollster and political scientist who studies political behaviors. And what what I really took away from our conversation was source of the poll is so important. And looking at the methodological information provided with the data can really give you an insight to how that poll will hold up in terms of, of you know, its accuracy. 
And there are just so many different things to look at too. The, the sample size, if it's a small sample, you really can't put too much stock in it. So you could see um, a, a tweet about a poll that says, um, you know, in Arizona, uh, Kirsten Cinema down by five. But if you look at the sample size and it was, you know, 400 people, there's, uh, as Rachel put it, a lot of noise in a small sample, a lot of different variables that could really easily sway that the, the final result. And so you really want to look at for large sample sizes. So um, you have to be, I, I would say, a responsible poll consumer. Yes. And it definitely does take a little bit more research and a little bit more reading and, and analyzing to really get the most out of reading polls. And, and like you said, Marissa, though, there's this part of you that's like, take them with a grain of salt, take them with a grain of salt. And then it's Andrew Gillum's up. Woo! And it can be very <laughs> emotional roller coaster, to be honest. <laughs> there's just not enough to be emotional about these days. So I'm really right. glad that we have polls to, to exactly. uh, awaken our emotions. <laughs> yeah, to really, to really give us that, that sense of, of panic, in addition to all the other panic. Sometimes I just look at polls to see if I still feel. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, that is exactly how it feels sometimes. <laughs> um, and I know that a lot of us have some some polling hangovers or a little bit of trauma after the 2016 election because so many people said that you know Hillary had a clear lead and the polls showed her up almost the entire election cycle, and then obviously that never ended up coming to fruition. But I think something else Rachel points out is that, yes, the polls did show that, but she was saying that pollsters had signals that that might not be entirely accurate because of the high number of undecided voters in those polls. And that's another thing to look out for. When you have undecided numbers in the teens, that poll might not be as reliable or as accurate as some others. I just think that everyone's going to get a whole lot out of our conversation, and I hope it will um, help demystify this very um, seemingly complicated system, especially coming from someone like me who uh, very narrowly passed statistics in college. Um, <laughs> I, I'm very impressed by the people who do this, and um, I, I appreciate what they do because it does have a big impact on the political discourse. So it might seem tangential to crush the midterms, but looking at polling data is so important and understanding what it means is really going to help you in the long run. Okay, everyone, we are here with Rachel Bittekoffer, who is an assistant director of the Wasson Center for Public Policy at Christopher Newport University. And she teaches classes about political behavior and campaigns and elections and political analysis. And we're so excited to have her here today because we are going to be talking about everyone's favorite topic, polling, <laughs> the numbers. What do they mean? Thank you so much for joining us, Rachel. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's a great topic. It is. Um, so we're, yeah, it's fascinating. Like, yeah, I'm sure on Twitter every day we're seeing this poll just came out, this poll just came out. And um, so I think we just kind of wanted to help our listeners demystify this this whole process a little bit. Um, so I, I wanted to start with a really basic question. When, when they say that polling is released, what exactly um, should we uh, interpret that as meaning? 
So when new polling is released, it means somebody has fielded a study and they have analyzed the data, weighted it to reflect the population they're trying to measure, which in the case of election polling isn't just, you know, citizens of the state of Virginia, it's voters in that universe, right? Uh, so um, that's what, what you expect when you see a poll is that you're you know, going to get um, some, some evidence of what's going on in that, that uh, election. Okay, so I've always wondered, and this is, I've never understood this. So when you say that they conducted a study or they, they took this poll, who, who is responding? Like, who are they, who are you reaching out to? Who is responding? And how do you decide and craft a sample size and then kind of extrapolate? That's a really great question. And the answer definitely depends on whether you're doing a horse race election poll or something uh, involving public policy or something totally unrelated. Uh, But I'll speak specifically towards election polling because I think that's probably the most uh, salient topic and the one that people are paying the most attention to. Uh, In terms of election polling, the I think the best practice is to um, sample from the voter file, because you're trying, you got to keep in mind that for better or for worse in America, we have really, really low voter participation rates. And when we're looking at a cycle like 2018, we're talking about 40% of eligible voters voting. Okay. So if my goal is to take a race um, and anticipate which candidate is ahead or behind, or if it's a tie or what, it really behooves me to be very careful on that front end sampling process because I'm trying to get, you know, this subpopulation basically of citizen, the uh, midterm election voter, right? right. Uh, so I think the best practice is using the voter file and what that specifically is, and your listeners will be horrified to hear this, is a file that exists on every voter that re- includes, you know, some personal information, but obviously ca- contact info uh, for a cell phone, landline, uh, it can contain which elections they vote in. If it's a state that has party registration, it would have that information. Uh, in fact, the private vendors that sell to campaigns have a lot more information in that voter file. But for the purposes of a poll, you know, we're looking to say, okay, who is a likely voter? Because that's my model if I want to be accurate on the horse race. Right. That is that is horrifying. <laughs> it is horrifying. I think we, we've become probably a little too accustomed nowadays to knowing that just, you know, government companies have so much information about us. But I think it's interesting, you know, hearing that they have so much information on us and yet it still can be really difficult to get super accurate polls. Um, I feel like you, we, you see some polling about the same race and it's just swinging wildly one way or another. I know so many people are watching the Texas Senate race and it's like one day you see Ted Cruz is up by seven and then you see um, Beto O'Rourke is up by two. So how, how, do, we, um, how do we look at those numbers and, and reconcile those in our brains as, um, as intelligent voters? Yeah, I'm really glad that you asked that. I was hoping that I would get a chance to talk kind of about what Rachel Bittacoffer does when a survey is released. So the very first thing I do, you know, if you've got these surveys coming out on Ted on Ted Cruz and Beto O'Rourke, uh, before I look at anything, really, I look at the end of the survey because I want to know what their methodology is. Specifically, I'm interested in how many respondents they have in the data. 
because surveys, statistically speaking, get noisy when you're at 500 completes or below. So for me, I if I see a 500 M size or less, I'm still going to look at it depending on how the rest of the design is done, but I'm going to be nervous about it, okay? Because I'm not going to be 100% confident in the veracity of the numbers because that M size is a little bit low. Um, ideally, you're talking about 700 or above, and really 1,000 is wonderful to have. Um, and then the second thing I'm looking at is the sampling. Like I talked about um, the voter files, and that I think is becoming pretty standard now for these likely voter surveys. But there, there's still other ways that they're getting done. And, and if they're doing rant, what we call RDD or random digit dialing sample, that's going to give me a little bit of pause too because you're um, trusting respondents to tell them, tell you whether they're registered to vote. You don't know for sure whether they are or not, as you would with the voter file. And with the voter file, we, um, we sample out for our surveys. We are we're trying to get you know a really tight model and really accurately get the preferences of people who show up on election day, not just everybody. So one of the advantages with that voter history is I can say, okay, here's this. I've got 20,000 people and they do vote. Like I can see that they showed up in this election and that election and this election. And then from there, when I ask them, are you going to vote? And they tell me yes, then I know with some degree of confidence, whether it's accurate or not, if that makes sense. Yeah. So those are the two things that I'm most concerned about. I'm less concerned about whether it's online or on the telephone. I do want a mix of cell phones and landlines because you're going to over underrepresent millennials and um, now front end of Gen uh, Z if you don't have cell phone sampling. So, um, you know, I would say to your listeners, Try to look for those things. If the survey doesn't have those things, then in terms of predicting an election, you might want to take whatever it's telling you with a grain of salt. Right. So uh, to that end, I've, I've heard a couple of different places that, especially in these election polling data, that polls conducted before October or before the le- weeks leading up to an election are generally not useful in predicting election outcomes. Has, has that been your experience? No, um, I don't necessarily think that's true. It it certainly uh, um, can be a problem because you have people who are tuning into the the process late, Mm -hmm. uh, and it seems so weird, but when I give my public lectures, I always tell the audience, um, you know, hey, congratulations, you're in the 1%, and they always look around confused, and I'm like, no, 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 not the economic 1%, you're in the information 1% because you're here tonight doing this you know lecture with a political scientist and that means you're weird <laughs> so, you know, we are weird people and when we are looking out at trying to like make um, assumptions about other people based on what we know then we're going to be wrong because 95% of Americans are like midterm there's a midterm going <laughs> <laughs> and our, our environments really distort that, right? So um, I do think there is value in being closer to election day, obviously. Um, I have some methodological tricks I use to get people off the fence if they say they're undecided. And you really do want to have a low number of undecideds because um, this perception that the polling was really off in 2016 is actually not right. The 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 data the whole time was sending a signal to us, and I'm saying us 
as in political scientists and journalists, that we were just not listening to. And that data point was the high, very unusually high number of people who were still saying they were undecided mm. even a week before this presidential election. Yeah. So, um, you know, undecideds can make a big difference in a poll if it's more than 10 points and you have a horse race that says it's 45 to 47 percent. Really, you, you, you have not really a good picture of what's happening. So interesting. So um, this time around, 2018, I know midterms are very different than a presidential, but are there any, um, are, you, are you seeing any signs like that, that the polling um, isn't, uh, you know, that, that we should be kind of taking certain things from the, the current polling that's going on? Yeah, so added to Rachel Bittacoffer's cheat sheet of what to look for in a poll, always look at that top line undecided. Uh, I have noticed quite a few of them are up in the teens. And so you're, that's tough because you're thinking, okay, well, this says it's 45%, you know, 40, but I've got 13% of people in the survey of 500 that said they're undecided. So that means that I don't really have a very good sense of where this is going to shake out. I have a sense that at least it's not a landslide in one way or the other, but I'm not really getting a, a clear picture of who's, who's going to win this very close race. So is that what they say when you talk about margin of error or is that just baked into the methodological process? So that's another great question and it wraps around to that end size. So literally what the margin of error is, and this is really always useful to have this conversation in the late fall because we just went through hurricane season. And as you know, on the hurricane map, they have the, the picture of the hurricane and then they send this cone out from it and it's going to make landfall somewhere within that cone of uncertainty. Well, that's exactly what a margin of error is. It's a cone of uncertainty and the size of that cone is going to be dependent on a few things about the survey, but is conditioned in a very major way on the number of completes that you have. So when you have a um, end size of 500 surveys, or I've seen a few in the 400s or even 300s this cycle, we're talking about a cone of uncertainty of five, six percent. And so a candidate might have 45 percent of the vote or that they might have 51 percent of the vote or they might actually have 39 percent of the vote. Do you see how how much uncertainty that introduces? So statistically speaking, um, you know, when you have that low end size and a big margin of error, you really are introducing a lot of uncertainty. And then if you were to throw in a high number of undecideds on that, there's just a lot of uncertainty involved in interpreting that data. I just saw earlier today that there are some new numbers out about the uh, the generic ballot for the midterms. And it looks like the Democrats have the, the largest margin they've had so far. Um, and I wanted to, um, I, I would love for you to walk us through and our listeners through like what, what is meant by the generic ballot and, and how reliable um, is this sort of data? That's wonderful. Yes. Yeah, so the generic ballot is a question that asks the respondent, if election for the House of Representatives or Congress was for today, would you vote for the Republican candidate or the Democratic candidate? And then based on that response, it gives the party, one party, the advantage, or if there's no advantage at all, it'd be a tie. 
So when we say that Democrats have been leading by seven points on the generic ballot, that means there's a seven point gap between preferences. Right. Uh, um, And so it doesn't surprise me at all to hear that some new data is going to reaffirm this enthusiasm gap. There has been a lot of chatter and I think a lot of angsty hand wringing going on in people um, since the Kavanaugh confirmation kind of went out of control and, and it was clear that he was going to be confirmed and they people have been like, oh, what have we done? We've activated the Republican base. But anybody that's familiar with my work on the Watson Center blog will know that, you know, that is probably not going to be an issue. Instead, Democrats are going to have this big enthusiasm gap uh, and it's probably been made worse for uh, Republicans, not better having this Kavanaugh confirmation play out the way it did. Democrats were already um, basically a burning and uh, a bonfire. And I think I've been referring to it now as an inferno of rage, right? So, <laughs> I, I definitely feel that. Yeah. I feel that. <laughs> so like, what the surveys, you know, and this is the real limitation of them, is that you, you're basing what you, so there's a process we haven't spoken about on the tail end of data collection called waiting. And what that means is you have your data, and you have a natural shakeout of men and, and women and different races and ages and even regions or what have you. And it may or may not be a good um, natural reflection of the, of, the, of the population, you know, voters in Virginia that you're trying to capture. So every survey will then apply um, back-end weighting to give some respondents more um, you know, I guess power in the data than others so that it works out to reflect the actual population. And when we look at that weighting process, in general, pollsters are going to want to look at what has happened in the past and use that to make inferences about what the electorate will look like in the future. And that can be um, a real limitation. So um, let me kind of illustrate that with a story of our Virginia polling last year. I anticipated um, a big blue wave in Virginia of Trump backlash. And in my surveys, I was telling my colleague, look, I think Democrats are going to be super fired up. And I don't think the electorate is going to look like it did in 2014. I think it's going to be more favorable to certain groups that are democratically, especially um, college educated women. And so even though I've tried to kind of account for that in my waiting, I, and we did. We captured it within the margin of error because the governor um, race here ended up being six points in favor of the Democrat or nine points in favor of the Democrat. And we recalled our polling was like steady always at six or seven. Um, I still feel like that waning, I still underestimated that change. And I, I think that's probably what's happening in a lot of the polling this year. I think that surveyors are aware that there may be some changes in the demographic composition of the midterm electorate, that Democrats are going to improve in some areas, younger people, more college-educated women or what have you. But I still think that they're underestimating just how much that improvement's going to be. So I think in races like Texas, um, you know, if it's five points, Cruise to me when I'm looking at that, I'm handicapping it up and saying, you know, this is probably almost a dead heat. Hmm. Well, well, that's good to hear. Yeah, that is really good to hear. <laughs> it's also really fascinating. So I have I have sort of a, a psychological question, which might be outside the scope, but I feel like for a lot of people, polls and polling data are so comforting and and people really respond or comforting or enraging or worrying. 
and people <laughs> really respond to this type of polling data. I, I mean, what is it about polls that makes us so emotional? I mean, if you look at it, it's just numbers. <laughs> I mean, I've... I mean, I'm, I'm the same well, way. Like, I take <laughs> polls very seriously. But I've always wondered, like, is, is, is that been your experience? Is this something that, like, really means a lot to people? Yeah, so I, I'm not a psychologist, but I do play one on podcasts. <laughs> so let me tell you. <laughs> so I we'll allow it. <laughs> I am an expert in political behavior, and, and uh, I like to say human behavior in general. So let me tell you why. Because human beings hate ambiguity. And polls give us something tangible to hold on to. Uh, and see, that's, that's great. And it's really wonderful that the polling industry has just exploded since 2000. If you try to go back and get data like we have now, pre-2005 even, you'll see there's hardly any data out there like that. Um, so we have this proliferation of polling. But the problem is, is that, you know, these methodological quirks um, can sometimes produce issues where people are expecting one outcome and they get another, and then they that kind of you know makes some cast shade or throw shade at the polling industry in general. So I guess I would close that out by saying you know be a smart connoisseur when we go to the grocery store. Um, you know you're looking to see is this organic certified? Is it got GMOs? God forbid. You know, like, <laughs> well, we need to be like that about our polling data as well, and go to that methodology section, look and understand the limitations of the data, and, um, and then take from that data the amount of certainty it can afford you. And if it can't afford you a lot, then you need to wait for the next meal and order a filet mignon. <laughs> I, I had a, one last question from my end. Um, I know that who who the, the whoever's fielding the the poll and the the survey matters as far as the kind of outcome you're going to get. But it seems to me that the people interpreting the data is is just as important. And before we got on, we were talking about how polling and uh, it's a very male dominated field. And I was wondering if you felt like you saw, often saw differences in how you might interpret some polling data versus maybe a, a man looking at the same data. Yes, I think, I think so. I do think that there are some gender um, issues with that. I will say that like election polling is inc incredibly male dominated. Polling at, um, in, in the academic world is far more gender um, gendered and, and diverse. But um, in terms of the election polling, I definitely think that it it can be an advantage to be coming from the female perspective. I think that um, our white male allies understand a little bit of the angst that has come into um, the American woman in the age of Trump, but they don't, they, they, although they may be able to sympathize with it, they aren't, they aren't of it, if that makes sense. And so I think that there yeah. it does like, you know, I understand, I think, what's happening with women because I am a woman. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I think that it definitely matters to have. That's why you need to have diversity on, you know, these election panels, on these um, big um, ticket survey outfits. You know, you want to have a diverse um, group of people looking at the data because it does definitely does matter. Those decisions that you make about waiting in a horse race are absolutely as crucial as anything else that you decide. And, uh, you know, you'd be, you need to be able to think about things as collectively and, and nuanced as possible. And that's, that can be hard to do when you only have one 
um, rec, you know, one white guy on there. <laughs> right. Well, well, there's such a focus on getting a, a diverse and representative group of people to poll. So the same consideration should be made for the people doing the polling. Yeah. That's exactly right. And, you, and you, you know, ultimately, the, um, you know, when you said the, the firm's reputation matters, it, it, it does. And it comes down to that methodology, you know, so a, a survey that you can see and access the methodology, you can read it, you can get a, a pretty detailed description of how they collected the respondents and, you know, what they did with their weighting. Those are, you know, those are things that are going to happen with, you know, solid uh, survey companies and, and academic outfits and, you know, the whole gambit. So, um, you know, this idea that um, I, I, was, I think people need to be cautious about survey data that they can't see um, much about the methodology for. Yeah. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Um, so I have one last question on my end, and this has to do with how social media has affected polling. And if there's any time where you take maybe something like a Twitter trend into account. So if if people are talking about something on Twitter, does that go into how you weight or or look at something like traditional polling data because i know especially in the 2016 presidential election social media was such a central part of the story so is that something that has kind of evolved with the polling industry yeah i mean you know i think donald trump is almost like a it's almost like an anomaly though right so with with donald trump much of his communication to voters was through his twitter account and i know that we hold on topics that were related to things that he was doing on Twitter. Um, but, but in terms of like a actual ongoing trend, um, I would say that in most cases you're kind of locked in, right? Uh, kind of, it, it'd be hard to respond to a trend in real time through polling right. um, that's done scientifically. Now, of course, when you have instant polls, uh, usually you're doing that as an opt in poll uh, those are not what we call non-scientific polls. And a great example of them would be the instant polls that the media companies like to have on debates, right? Who's winning the debate? You know, let's watch it in real time. And keeping in mind that the people who are um, doing the survey are not being randomly selected because they are choosing to opt in. And who's going to opt in? Those people who are most passionate <laughs> So um, with social media, like real-time trend stuff, that could be a limit. So, if so, But if something happened big enough, and I guess I, anytime I can find a way to circle back to Kim Kardashian's butt photo, I always do. <laughs> so when Kim Kardashian's the field pretty quickly about that trend or that dress, remember with the blue dress yeah. or is it white or is it blue, things like that that like really everybody's talking about. It's a water cooler level event you could um, incorporate into survey research for sure. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Rachel, thank you so much for sitting down with us. This was honestly so fascinating because I didn't realize how much I didn't know about polling and how, how much I take for granted when I look at something like polling numbers. So it, it's been very helpful. 
Well, I'm so glad. It was a real pleasure. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks so much. And um, we'll uh, we'll be watching your Twitter feed with bated breath as we get through these last few weeks. It's going to be craziness. Yeah, please do. And don't be afraid to share my handle with your followers and push them to my site because I, I want some eyes on my midterm predictions. So. Sure. Why, why don't you shout out your Twitter handle right now? Oh, sure. It's at Rachel Bittacoffer. It was um, my first and last name. So um, it was totally available because no one wants to be a Bittacoffer. <laughs> <laughs> and then my survey or uh, my midterm analysis and predictions, which are, by the way, totally awesome and completely different than what you're used to seeing, are available on my blog, which is the Watson Center, if you Google that. Awesome. Awesome. Definitely will do. Well, thanks, Rachel. And, and, and stay strong these last few weeks. <laughs> uh, you too. Okay. Yeah. Bye. Bye. So, Marissa, that was such a fascinating conversation. Like we said at the top of the show, I feel like Rachel was just so clear and articulate and really illuminated a lot of these more complicated issues around something that is pretty complex, like polling. So what do you have for this week's call to action? So your call to action, should you choose to accept it, would you better? Um, is that um, we are now within four weeks of election day, which is so crazy and so soon and will go by in a flash. And so I, I and, and Devin want to challenge you to just go a little bit further, push yourself a little bit more and sign up for one more activity that's going to help with a competitive campaign. So whether that's one more phone banking shift, one more canvassing shift, writing a few postcards to voters, um, text banking, which is another uh, great and easy thing to do from home. Just, you really, you don't want to get to November 6th and feel like you didn't do all that you possibly could. So I really encourage you to um, take a look at your schedule. Don't overload yourself, but find an open evening or afternoon where you are going to Write it down in your calendar, which as I get older and older, I realize is very important, putting it in your calendar, (laughs) Um, all about that calendar life. Put it in your calendar and block that time out and even set a reminder a few days before to make sure that you're all set. And I guess I think the other call to action is to remember to take polls with a grain of salt. You can be excited about them, but know your sources. And I think that's also really important. And maybe even go back and if you can think of a poll off the top of your head that you were really excited about or really bummed about, go take a little bit closer look um, through the lens of the, the things that Rachel told us and see if um, if it's actually legitimate. And then you'll have like a cool little fact to share at a party if you're as cool as I am at parties. I was going to say, I'm real fun at cocktail parties because <laughs> I jump right into politics every time. <laughs> oh my God. Yesterday, I, my friend and I played a game and you can't see me, but I'm doing air quotes for game um, where we, we wanted to see how many U.S. senators we could name off the top of our head. <laughs> It's a lot. Yeah, I'm a hoot. (laughs) Yeah. I got 43, and I was honestly pretty ashamed of myself because I missed some real layups. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Oh, man. That's what what you get when you're a politics nerd. So. Completely. Well, 
Thank you all so much for listening. We hope that you are enjoying this journey with us as much as we are. And so tune in next week for another topic, another guest, and another way to crush the midterms. And if you haven't already, make sure all your friends and family know about crushthemidterms.org, where they can make a plan for volunteering and donating from now until the very imminent midterm election. Yes. And then also, we want to hear your stories. So tell us on Twitter. You know, you can you can reach us and tell us how you are crushing the midterms because it's so inspiring to see what you're doing every day. 